A believer's spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal his joy. Contemplate that statement for a while. A believer's spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal his joy. I believe that's a true statement. But all of us have had encounters and experiences with what I call the joy stealers, haven't you? What are some of these detractors, these thieves of joy? Well, let's just look at a few. First of all, circumstances. Circumstances can do a number on our joy when we view them from the wrong angle. Correct? Stop and think of how much control we have over our circumstances, but though. How much? None. If our joy is dependent upon ideal circumstances, we will be miserable most of the time. G. Campbell Morgan once said that what we do in a crisis always depends on whether we see the difficulties in light of God or God in the shadow of the difficulties. How we respond in a crisis demonstrates where we place our confidence and also determines whether we lose our joy or not. Two, people. People can be joy stealers, no? You've seen the bumper sticker that reads, the more I meet people, the more I love my dog. Heard me say that so much. People can rob us of joy. When what they are, what they say, and what they do doesn't measure up to our expectations. All of us have experienced the loss of joy because of people in our midst. But then again, I'm sure that at one point or another, every single one of us has caused someone else's day to be slightly less than joyful as well. Number three, things. The pursuit of things can completely wipe our joy away. This is particularly true in our materialistic culture. If you think that joy is based on a stockpile of stuff, you're in for a rude awakening. There's not always a rainbow at the bottom of a pot of gold. Jesus made it plain in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He said, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Fear. Fear can rob us of our joy. As one pastor put it, we need to stop living as if the purpose of our lives is to arrive safely at death. Instead, we need to start playing offense with our lives. I like that. Closely related to fear is what I would call the devil's greatest joy robber, and that is worry. Fear, anxiety, worry, all of these things cause us to lose the joy of today. Worry, someone said, is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunity with yesterday's trouble. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, not to worry, not to be anxious. He taught that for the child of God to worry is unnecessary because of our caring Father. It's uncharacteristic because of our Christian faith, and it's unwise because of our promised future. Paul said virtually the same thing in the book of Philippians toward the end of the book in chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's joy knew no bounds. It went out of bounds, you could say. What caused that joy for him? Well, there was something inside of him that enabled him to rise above what should have brought him down at every angle. By having what Paul had, we can experience the joy that he had in the face of trying circumstances, joy in the face of contentious people, joy that does not depend on the acquisition of things, joy that does not kowtow to obsessive fears and worries. What is it that Paul had? What did he have? He had confidence. Confidence in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And that freed him to promote the gospel in every situation that he found himself in. Like Paul, we need to be convinced that God had a positive purpose for every one of our circumstances and that he never wants to take our joy away. He always has a positive purpose for our circumstances. The devil is the one who steals our joy by undermining our confidence in God. Follow along with me as I read this next section of Philippians chapter 1 that we're going to look at this morning, verses 19 to 26. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again." Spreading the good news in this life about Christ is a constant battle, isn't it? J.C. Ryle, however, described it as, as worth the cost. Listen to what he said. He said, the Christian's fight is good because it ends in glorious reward for all who fight it. Who can tell the wages that Christ will pay to all his faithful people? Who can estimate the good things that our divine captain has laid up for those who confess him before men? The bravest generals, he says, must go down one day before the king of terrors. Better, far better, is the position of him who fights under Christ's banner against sin, the world, and the devil. He may get little praise of man while he lives and go down to the grave with little honor, but he shall have that which is far better because it is far more enduring. Do not be discouraged if in the midst of your present battle to maintain your Christian testimony, you see little reward. You have Christ's promise that everyone who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. So for the Christian, life on earth is a constant battle with circumstances, people, worries, etc. And maintaining our joy throughout all of that depends on one thing, confidence in Christ. 
Paul had it because he had a fixed focus, fulfilling the purpose of God. And when that becomes the primary goal, nothing can take your joy away. Paul says that the joyful promotion of the gospel involves confidence in Christ. And that's exhibited in a number of different ways. And we're going to look at two this morning, and the rest of them we're going to look at next week. The first one is this. Confidence in Christ is exhibited through a settled conviction. A settled conviction. Verses 19 and 20. Again. Paul says, I will rejoice in verse 18. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That I'm not going to be put to shame in anything. But that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, note this now, whether by life or by death. See, when a person has true confidence in Christ, he has a settled mind about his circumstances. Paul knew the basis of his confidence was that Christ's purposes for his life were going to be fulfilled. The gospel was progressing. He had a handle on the fact that his imprisonment was only temporary. He would either be delivered by death or in life. He knew that everything in his life had a purpose. And he took to heart the scripture he himself had written to the Romans in Romans 8, 28. Right? You know that verse? That everything works together for good for those who love God, for a purpose. He has a purpose for everything and a call according to that purpose. He knew he would be delivered one way or the other, either in life or in death. It's uncertain whether he meant delivered from the threat of execution, that he would be vindicated through his trial, that he would be released from prison, or that he was referring to his ultimate salvation and glory if he was killed. All of these things would eventually happen to him and turn out to be true. But the important point to note here is that Paul rested squarely on the fact that his situation was temporary. And he would be delivered from it one way or the other. Things were going to turn out exactly as God had directed. That's what Paul was thinking. Samuel Johnson once said to Lord Chesterfield in 1777, he said, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. And that was Paul's mind. I think we need Paul's kind of settled conviction, settled mindset. Our settled conviction will come from the same five areas of confidence that Paul's did. Let me list them for you. Number one, we need to be confident in the promises of Scripture. Okay? Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, Paul says. Paul's confidence was based on what he knew about God's promises. He knew the response Job made in his situation. In Job chapter 13 and verse 16, about his afflictions. Job says, I know that this also will be my salvation. Can you say that about your circumstances? Paul was confident that eventually he would be delivered. Why? Because God has promised to deliver the righteous. He's promised it in Scripture. Psalm 22, Psalm 34 even in Matthew chapter 5, when it talks about blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake, your reward in heaven will be great. 
There are promises in Scripture for the Christian that God will deliver them. Paul had a settled mind because he knew his afflictions were only temporary. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn there if you would. Let me read you a few verses about Paul's confidence. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Look at verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul's situation in prison was temporal, but where he had his mind fixed was eternal. He had confidence in Christ. How confident are you in God's promises to you? Have you ever listed them out? When my wife and I were struggling with leaving my state job to go to Bible college many years ago, we listed, we went through the Scripture, and we listed every promise that we could find pertaining to doing God's will and prayed through every single one of them. That list gave us a settled mind, and they proved to be true. And they kept us sustained all the way through those four years. And it was tough. There were some very tough times. But listen, if we can't be confident in the promises of Scripture, what else is there to rely on? We need to be confident in the promises of Scripture, but that's not all. The second thing that gave Paul confidence here in his settled mind is that we need to be confident in the prayers of the saints. Look at verse 19 again, Philippians 1. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, through your prayers. Paul's mind was also settled in that people were praying for his deliverance. Prayer is a confidence builder, is it not? You want to have confidence in your circumstances? Bank on the fact that someone's praying for you. Paul was greatly encouraged and strengthened by the prayers of the saints here in Philippi. In fact, he asked for prayer. Prayer is one of the greatest resources we have in battle, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 6. Just, just go left in your Bible one page or so and look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, as he finishes listing the armor of God that we clothe ourselves in. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And now look what he says here. He says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. If you were going to, if I were going to ask you, who should you pray for, for boldness in their circumstances, would the Apostle Paul have been on the top of your list? Probably not. 
And yet Paul is asking them for prayer so that he can be bold in his situation. We all need that. We all need someone to pray for us. I remember years ago, early in my ministry here at Fayette, I was going through a very, very stressful time. I was a young 31-year-old, inexperienced, trying to balance being a full-time student in Portland, a full-time minister in Fayette, and a full-time father and husband with a family who lived in Augusta, and a full-time follower of Jesus Christ. A little stressful. And I was losing my confidence. One Wednesday evening at a prayer meeting here at church, back in the days when we had Wednesday evening prayer meetings, I was extremely discouraged, thinking that no one in the church was praying for me. They didn't even have a clue about what I was going through. But the Lord showed me otherwise. During our prayer time, a young teen began interceding for me. And I could actually feel this immeasurable sense of confidence just filling me up, convincing me that God was indeed at work. I hadn't asked anybody for prayer. I hadn't even said a word about my situation. Yet God showed me clearly that there is power when we are covered by prayer. Amen? Sometimes we don't always hear the prayers. But we must believe and have confidence that God moves people to pray for us in our situations. Pray for each other. You want someone to pray for you, but you need to be that person for somebody else as well. That's why Paul says pray unceasingly. We must have confidence in the prayer of the saints. James chapter 5, verse 17 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And it does accomplish much. Thirdly, we can be confident in the provision of the Spirit. Verse 19 again. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The word provision here means to super abundantly add to. It's a concept of overflowing supply, opening up the floodgates, so to speak. We have all the power we need for confidence because why? Because we've been abundantly supplied with the Holy Spirit of promise. Amen? I believe the Spirit of Christ empowers a person to have confidence in the face of affliction exactly when it's needed. He doesn't always give it ahead of time, but he'll give it to you when it's needed. Even Jesus said to the disciples, don't plan out what you're going to say when they capture you and bring you before the courts. But my Father, the Holy Spirit, will give you the words and what to say. Don't worry about that. But know that when you need it, he is there to supply it. Amen? When I first came to Christ, I remember reading about Christians being persecuted in Romania for their faith, who endured horrendous torture with smiles on their faces, so joyful in Christ that they sang to the Lord while they were being tortured. That is deliverance. And as a young Christian, I'm thinking, what did I get myself into? And I remember hearing the personal testimony of Richard Wormbrand, a Romanian pastor who was in prison for 14 years in communist prisons for his faith. And what a powerful experience that was for me and my wife. It was this same pastor who wrote the following words in his widely read book, Tortured for Christ. This is what he wrote. He said, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. 
It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal, he says. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everybody was happy. (laughs) Could you have that kind of an attitude? God supplies it when it's needed. Think about the example of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. Acts chapter 6. God supplied the vision of heaven for him. So he was, and it enabled him to look up and say the same thing that Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. See, the fact that the Spirit provides us with the resources that we need whenever and wherever we need it should generate this kind of confidence in the hearts of believers, shouldn't it? Because this is what he provides us with, according to the Scriptures. In Zechariah 4, 6, he provides us with power to perform. It's not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In John 14, 16, Jesus says his personal presence goes with us. He said, I will give you the Holy Spirit who will be with you forever. In John 16, 13, we have this power to perceive by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he will lead you into all the truth and bring to your remembrance the things that I taught you. He gives us power to witness in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit will come upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in all the world. He gives us power to pray. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, we don't even know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness and teaches us how to pray. Even with groanings, too deep for words. He gives us the power to produce fruit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. When everything in our being is saying, no way, I can't go on, the Spirit provides the power to make us loving, patient, kind, gentle, have self-control, good, faithful. That's all fruit of the Spirit. And he gives us the power to be preserved. In chapter 1 of Ephesians in verse 13, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Preserves us to the end. See, Paul had confidence in God who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. And what power is that? Our own power? No, the Spirit's power, the Spirit who he gave. And we can do that just like Paul. We need to be confident in the provision of the Spirit. And we need to be confident in the prospect of salvation, fourthly, Verse 20 says, this is going to turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, the provision of the Spirit, and according to my earnest expectation and hope. And what is that? What's his earnest expectation and hope? His ultimate salvation, the consummation of his salvation. Not only do we need confidence in the Word, confidence in prayer, confidence in the Spirit, but we must have confidence in the future hope of our salvation. Paul had this earnest expectation and hope, it says in verse 20. In other words, he was waiting in suspense for this day to happen. The Greek word for earnest expectation here is a combination, really, of three words. Away, the head, and to watch. 
So put those things together, and what it indicates is this anxious longing for something. It pictures a person stretching his neck out and forward to see what's up ahead. Like when you're trying to pass that truck in the no-passing zone and you're going like this, right? It's this intense hope which ignores all the other interests in your life. Let me ask you a question. Are we that intensely interested in our future salvation that we are so stretching our necks out to see it and expect it and look forward to it that everything else pales in comparison to that? Because when you're in the thick of the battle, you are. When you're in the thick of the war, that's what you're looking for. But if you're not really in the fight, you don't really care when it happens, right? I bet Christians in the Middle East are stretching their necks right now, looking forward to the end of these earthly wars. Don't you think they are? That's what Paul's referring to here. His confidence was in the fact that he would never be put to shame either before the world, Caesar's court, or the Lord at his coming. And God gave a promise for those who are expectantly waiting, awaiting his coming. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 23, it says, those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. In Psalm 25, 3, no one who hopes in you, Lord, will ever be put to shame. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in verse 20 here. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body. There's no disillusionment here, no disgrace, no discouragement, no disappointment for those who put their hope in Christ. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28 let me read it to you out of the message. I think this is a really good rendering of this verse in the message. He says, and now, children, stay with Christ. Picture this as my words to you. Now, children, stay with Christ. Live deeply in Christ. Then we'll be ready for him when he appears. Ready to receive him with open arms, with no cause for red-faced guilt or lame excuses when he arrives. That puts it in layman's terms, doesn't it? Are you sure you won't be ashamed when the Lord comes for you? Are you ashamed of him? Are you willing to stand right now for Christ in your life? Because you know something? Let me tell you this. We have a whole lot more to fear than our circumstances. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, Jesus said, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We ought to pray the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 116, which says this, sustain me according to thy word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. That should be our prayer every day. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. And we should be striving to apply the confidence of Paul 
who in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, said these words. He said, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew he would be delivered one way or the other. And he was confident that he would not be ashamed. But as I pointed out, even Paul asked for prayer for boldness. Imagine that, Paul. He could have easily lost his boldness in prison, just like any of us. And he expressed his desire to be confident and courageous. In our circumstances, we must realize that apart from the promises of Scripture, the prayers of the saints, the provision of the Spirit, and the prospect of our salvation, our confidence easily wanes, doesn't it? It does. But there's one final thing here that we should place confidence in. And this is the tough one. This is the one that most often escapes us and often undoes us. We need to be confident in the purpose of our suffering. Verse 20, again. I won't be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul knew the purpose of his suffering was so that Christ would be magnified and exalted, and he placed his trust in God's plan for that. At the beginning of, of Paul's ministry, when he first came to know Christ in Acts chapter 9, in verse 15, we read these words. The Lord said to him, now he's talking to Ananias now, who went to Paul, Saul, after Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. Ananias was a little bit afraid. He said, this guy's been persecuting the church, and now, Lord, you're telling me that he's an instrument of yours? Verse 15, Acts 9, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now look at verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. For my name's sake. That was the reason for Paul's suffering. In Acts chapter 22, toward the end of the book of Acts, we see this reiterated and fulfilled actually again. In chapter 22, verse 14, Paul's giving his testimony and his defense. And he says, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know, this is what he's saying, the Lord spoke to him. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Paul knew that his suffering had a purpose. It was to exalt the Lord in his body, whether by life or by death. Whether by a fruitful life or a martyr's death, Paul was confident that God was going to be glorified. And every event in his life just fell into that category. Let me ask you, is your life like a magnifying glass, making Christ largely visible to the world? You look at every event, everything you do in your life as part of the purpose that God saved you for to magnify him to the world. Because it can be, and it ought to be. 
Let me get on one of my hobby horses again because this, this is really practical. If your life is magnifying God, it will show up here. Did you know, you know, don't you, that Facebook acts like a magnifying glass of your life, right? Right? It's a fishbowl. Trust me, I know, I live in one. I know what a fishbowl is like. People are evaluating your commitment to Christ by what you post, what you share, what you like, what you quote, and what you project on Facebook. Do you ever think about what your purpose is on Facebook before you post something? Ever? Did you ever consider the fact that your Facebook page is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that God has allowed you to have to magnify his glory in your life? Do you ever think, before you post something, if Jesus were in my friends list, and I hope he is, and he read what I just posted, would he hit the like button? Would he comment favorably? Would he laugh? Or would he read it and weep? Are you that confident in your pursuit of your purpose for being on earth that you can say no matter what happens in life or in death or on Facebook, Christ is glorified in my life? Because let me tell you, your life's not going to be glorified in life or in death if it's not on Facebook. We're talking about arguing from the lesser to the greater here. You know, if you want your life to matter, if you want your death in Christ to matter, then you better start doing it in the little things. Amen? 2 Timothy chapter 1. I get off that hobby horse now. Phew, aren't you glad? It'll come up again, I'm sure. <laughs> chapter 1, verse 8. And pray for me that I don't ever post anything that comes back on me. So I'm human like you. I have weak moments. But listen to what Paul says. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul calls us to have confidence in Christ. And the first thing we need to know is that our confidence in Christ will be exhibited through our settled conviction. Second thing we need to know is that our confidence in Christ employs a single-minded commitment. Verse 21. And we're going to end with this verse. We're going to finish up the rest of the verses next week. This verse you could preach for weeks on. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of those chocolate mousse scriptures, right? It's thick and rich. You can't take it all in at once. It must be savored. This verse is the epitome of Christian commitment. 
Only the preaching of the Apostle Paul could do this verse justice. The words for to me are emphasized, meaning that he was personally talking about the sum of his life consisted of Christ and him alone. St. John of the Cross once said these words. He said, the soul lives by that which it loves. The soul lives by that which it loves. What do you really love? What do you really love? The epitome of all your loves. Paul's life and his love was Christ. And Christ was Paul's life. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul's life epitomized those two truths that he basically took in through his faith in Christ. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Malt B. Babcock, who wrote the hymn, This Is My Father's World, said this, said, life is what we are alive to. What are you alive to? What are you alive to? You can usually tell what is most important to a person by observing what he talks about and how he or she lives. Look around a person's home, and you can usually size up their interests, right? Remember that next time someone comes over to your house. Everything about Paul exuded Christ. He ate, drank, walked, talked, breathed Christ. He lived Christ. Mark Batterson brings this home. He says, if you hated the gospel, wouldn't the apostle Paul be the most frustrating human being alive to you? It didn't matter what anyone did to this man. He loved God and continued to show it in every way possible. He's the man who, when threatened, says, well, to die is gain. In response, His captors will say, well, we'll torture you then. And Paul says, I don't count the present suffering as worthy to even compare to the future glory I'm going to receive. You can't win with a guy like that. If you want to kill him, he's cool with that because it means he gets to be with Jesus. If you want to make him suffer, he's cool with that so long as it makes him like Jesus. If you want to let him live, he's fine with that because to him, to live is Christ. Right? Christ had become for him the motive of his actions, the goal of his life and ministry, the source of his strength, the focus of his vision, and the sum of his existence. If you stuck Paul anywhere, he bled Christ. That's why his confidence was way beyond comparison, so hard to reach and fathom. That's why he could say with conviction that to die is gain. Really, Paul? How in the world could dying be gain? Commentator Frank Thielman observed that nearly every theological principle in this passage challenges the modern church of the West. And that is true. That is true. In light of the current events in Iran and Iraq, Syria, and other nations violently antagonistic to the Christian faith, perhaps more than at any other time in history, the church, indeed, you and I need to adopt Paul's perspective on life and death. Death at the hands of his persecutors did not faze Paul. In the least, he wasn't afraid to die because he knew that dying would result in being immediately with the greatest interest of his life, his Lord. Paul is, as Richard Sibbs says of everyone united with Christ, a man who can never be conquered. Think about that. A man who can never be conquered. 
Don't you want to be a man or a woman who can never be conquered? Here's a convicting application. Are you prepared to die? Are you ready to die? That's a scary question. It's kind of an unfair question in some respects. But that's what Paul was dealing with here. Do you fear death? An instructor and good friend of mine made this great statement to me once. He said, unless we have confronted the fact that we are prepared to die, we are not prepared to live properly. Do you think that's true? What do people see as being your life today? Great test of our lives as to how we relate to verse 21 here in Philippians 1. I'd like you to personalize this verse this week. You can do it right now. I'm going to put it on the screen. How would it read to you? You fill in the blanks, right? For to me to live is blank and to die is blank. Only you can fill those blanks in. To put anything but Christ in the first blank will result in a loss being placed in the last blank. No matter what you put there, it's going to end up being loss in the second blank. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. For to me, to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For me, to live is prestige, and to die is to be forgotten. For me, to live is power, and to die is to be useless. For me, to live is music, to die is to be silent. For me to live as sports, to die is to be benched. For me to live is my home, to die is to be homeless. And by the way, Christ will not share the first blank with anything else. As many of us may say that we put Christ in the blank, but in reality, upon closer inspection of our lives, and this is convicting to me as well as you, we really mean Christ plus something. Christ plus power. Christ plus prestige. Christ plus position. You see, it does not work. Paul made the best use of his life because he had confidence in Christ, and Christ was the only thing in the first blank. And that is what enabled him to be able to say to die is gain because Christ is what we gain when we die. You want to make the best use of your life? Be like Paul. Place your confidence in the only thing that matters for eternity, Jesus Christ. If you do, your life will be freed from fear and you will be filled with joy that is incomprehensible and confounding to most of the world around you. They will see Christ magnified in your life, up close and personal, and they will want what you have, guaranteed. Let me close with this story. Boris Cornfield gave someone a magnified view of Christ, and it not only changed that man's life, but went on to greatly impact the rest of the world and probably most of you without you even realizing it. Boris Cornfield was a Jew who lived in Russia, during Stalin's regime, he was imprisoned unjustly and was to live there for the rest of his life in prison. 
Being a medical doctor, he was to practice medicine, keeping the slaves alive and rewrite their records, saying that they were healthy enough to be put back into the slave block to work. If slaves died of starvation while working, that was fine, but they were not to die in the hospital. Slowly, he began to see through the politics and the philosophy. Miraculously, through the influence of a fellow inmate, he heard of Jesus Christ, and he himself came to know the Messiah. Dr. Cornfield received Jesus in his life. His life changed. And on one occasion, he performed surgery on the very guard who had beaten the slaves. He could have easily allowed the man to bleed to death, fix him just so much, but allow that slow trickle so that he could bleed to death, and no one would even know. Yet now that Christ lived in him, he could not kill even his own enemy. He even mumbled to himself something to the effect of, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. His new life in Christ compelled him to take a stand for what was right. And while tending to some patients, he caught a prison orderly stealing food from a dying man. And even though informers were usually murdered, Dr. Cornfield turned in the orderly. He stood for truth regardless of what it might cost him. A few days later, he was working on an inmate with severe cancer of the intestines. The man looked like he wouldn't live. So Dr. Cornfield was so concerned about the man's faith that he leaned over and spoke Christ to him as he drifted in and out of consciousness. In the morning, that patient awoke and in his groggy state heard noise down the hall, running about and trampling in, in the corridor, and the orderlies were carrying Cornfield's body to the operating room. He died on the operating table without regaining consciousness. His surgeon, Dr. Cornfield, was brutally murdered with a plasterer's mallet because of turning in that orderly. The fact that Dr. Cornfield lived for Christ and did not fear death was a powerful testimony to this patient. And realizing what it meant for Dr. Cornfield to have given his life for Christ's sake, the patient received Christ as well. The name of Dr. Cornfield's patient, Alexander Solzhenitsyn who won a Nobel Prize in literature in 1970 and who through his writings and speeches has challenged the mindset of a materialistic and prosperous America. Delivering the commencement address at Harvard University in 1978, he called the United States spiritually weak and mired in, the, in vulgar materialism. Americans, he said, suffered from a decline in courage and a lack of manliness. Few were willing to die for their ideals, he said. And we need to take notice. He also declared in his writings, over a half century ago, while I was still a child, he wrote, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. He said, quote, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened, unquote. Since then, Solzhenitsyn said, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat Men have forgotten God. That's why 
all this has happened. My friends, Paul would tell you today, he would tell me today, he would tell all of us today, do not forget God. Be a man, be a woman who can never be conquered. Your conviction about Jesus Christ, your commitment to Jesus Christ, and your confidence in Jesus Christ will change the world around you. And joy will be the blessed result. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Life is hard sometimes. Indeed, we think it is, and we don't even really deal with hardship here quite so much. But we all suffer difficulties, Lord. Let Paul's words in his letter to the Philippians be an inspiration, a testimony, and a truth to us that we can have confidence in Jesus Christ who delivers, who saves, and who ultimately rewards us with a heavenly reward. Thank you, our Father, that in spite of the circumstances, we can be above the circumstances. And we have no need to fear, for you are with us, and you will never leave us or forsake us as long as we place our faith and our trust in you. And may no one leave this place today without the confidence of Christ in their soul. I pray it for Jesus' sake and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.